if you are going to do this is find a way to add more value to the tenant without it costing you necessarily more money long term. This is the Think Big Property Podcast, where Nyang earns means from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has means of questions. In this episode, we're going to be diving into the topic of boarding houses and whether they're actually a good investment. We discussed Nyang's first experience with investing a boarding house and listened to what he learned from that experience. It provides us with some amazing design tricks you can use. We find out more about his current project and much, much more. interesting topic that has come up is whether boarding houses are actually a good investment. We will break down this topic and start by delving into boarding houses that Nyang has invested in. To give you a better background, um, about you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, I started looking into properties like this and what properties we're talking about is the concept of a mini boarding house. You know, everyone's familiar with the general boarding house where you might have 10, 20, 30 people in one building sharing bathrooms and kitchens and things like that. This is a little bit different where it's a mini boarding house. You might have half a dozen, five, maybe nine uh, tenants in one roof with their own um, kitchens, their own bathrooms or kitchenettes, their own en-suites and being self-sufficient. So yeah, at the moment, you know, uh, I'm building one myself. I've got a double block and I'm building one. But yeah, I've been looking at these things for over 10 years. It took me a long time to find someone who could do it legitimately. Uh, there's a lot of people doing it illegitimately where, you know, you might have a big house upstairs, downstairs, put up walls and chuck in a bunch of students. But, you know, after Childers where there was a, a fire and a whole, people, a whole sack of people died, I got really, really cautious because not just, you know, obviously uh, getting into trouble legally, but yeah, you just don't want to be in a position where you're not doing the, the right thing by people. In terms of, say, a boarding house for numbers wise, what is sort of the average or what would be the ideal amount of people that you can have in a property like this? Because, yeah, it's sort of on the brink of, say, maybe a mini, I guess, uh, triplex slash duplex as well, too. Like, I guess you can say it's sort of almost two duplexes joined together kind of idea. The number that we found is the sweet spot is around about five and there's various reasons for that. The biggest constraint um, about these kind of projects is finance and we'll, we'll break that down a little bit further but yeah, well, in, in, without going into too much detail right now, the, the magic number is roughly five. Uh, some councils, whether you're in um, Victoria, you can be, go potentially up to nine tenants. Uh, that does change the zoning or change the finance structure, sorry, uh, to commercial and that can be a bit more capital intensive but generally the, the magic number we find is between four and five. And you mentioned you've been looking at this for the last 10 years or so. Tell us a little bit about your first experience when you first started about 10 years ago. That'd be quite interesting to hear about. When you get into this industry or just looking at the wealth creation industry full stop, you look at multiple sources of income. You want to look at, okay, how can I get more income coming in, making money while you sleep? And from a property point of view, that's getting more tenants which is pretty easy to join those dots. Um, so my, my first experience and I laugh because it was pretty disastrous was I bought a house on the south side, sorry, north side uh, around about $310,000. It was actually a joint venture with somebody else and it, was, it had the capacity to put six people in it. 
it was your typical, let's say, timber Queenslander and had heaps of rooms. It had an extension out the back and we could physically fit six people in there with their own rooms and they had a shared kitchen and they had a shared bathroom. And I think, you know, that that was one of the, the things that um, was problematic about it is um, especially the shared kitchen. One of the things, problems we had during that, that start of it was that uh, people would steal each other's food. I know it sounds sounds funny to you, it sounds funny to me, but like you know, three-year-old kids, but it would happen quite regularly and people would get very, very resentful with each other. Uh, they get into debates and fights and arguments and you saw this, I oh, know I didn't. And so that, that was the first thing, one of the challenges I had. So I had the principal right, you know, six tenants, so paying roughly $100, $110 a week. Um, and, and it was a multiple sources of income. So call it, we paid 300 odd thousand back in 2010 or so. Um, and we paid, uh, so we got roughly $600 a week rent. So that was a good 10% yield, you know, a good 10% yield. So that was good on paper, but practically speaking, we had a lot of um, problems. So like I said, people stealing food. Uh, the second thing was the demographic that we attracted. So the demographic we attracted, because it was $100, $110 a week, um, because it didn't have en suites, it didn't, they didn't have their own kitchenettes, they were only, the market was only willing to pay $100, $110 bucks a week. Uh, I'm uh, attracted uh, people on housing, sorry, on uh, Centrelink. So th- those are the kind of tenants we attracted and we had lots of problems with uh, drug raids on the property, not with me personally, but I would get phone calls and messages on Saturday nights with the cops knowing that I was the landlord and the house started to build a bit of a, a brand for the wrong reason, um, that they yeah do drug drug deals there and then the cops would raid it. So to be honest with you, that was my first experience with it and it was pretty bad experience. So I was pretty jaded by it. Um, and then there was a few other requirements that came in like fire rating uh, that I didn't have. So essentially I sold that property and wrote it out as a loss because it just scarred me for life. Um, so having said that, I'm jumping back into the game and, and I'll talk to you about why I'm back in the game with a, a five bed, five bar scenario. It's fantastic to be able to hear from that different point of view and scenario as well because it's a learning experience and it can change over a period of time. And the reason why I resonate as well with you on that side of things is I did something quite similar in terms of share accommodation and I actually had about five of these properties running around locally um, around my area except what I was doing is I was renting the property and then subletting out each room to students. Yeah, so that was nice income. Um, I was probably generating between 100 to about $150 per room. The double bedrooms were getting about say 220 per week as well. And um, the issue and the same issue I came across was this shared kitchen and shared bathroom. <laughs> um, it doesn't seem to go anywhere with you know having students all very similar and um, if you, ha- you have to be very, very smart on who you pick and sometimes unfortunately, I didn't pick you know the one right tenant um, that went into it or one right student. And I, I remember very clearly one of them that really almost um, put me in so much pain and disaster was one one person who was from overseas. He, he was, um, I guess, sharing or having one room but what happened was he kept hogging the washing machine and he would actually, <laughs> not, 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 this, is not, this is pretty serious, it, was pretty, it wasn't a joke to, to him, he would actually wash one garment at a time. It wasn't, you know, he'd chuck in his 10 to 20 pieces, he'd wash one garment at a time and, you know, that, that obviously damaged the washing machine which I'd supply to them and I had to go in there probably once every month or so to get it repaired and fixed and it just gave me more headaches. Then after that, all the other tenants start complaining that they couldn't wash their clothes as well. So, it was just 
painful. I remember that experience so much that it almost, you know, jaded me from doing it again. Um, and, and luckily, I had a coach who sort of coached me through on how to actually explain to this tenant and try and get him, I guess, um, I don't know if you can say I was easily terminated because in that instance, you can't just terminate these people. You, you have to give them explaining reasons. And luckily, it was sort of at the end of his term almost and he had to go back overseas after his, um, I guess, his degree had finished. But that also jaded me as well because I had four or five of these running at the same time and I, at least two of the three, two of the five properties, I had um, tenant issues with and it was just basically down to you know picking the right tenants and I've learned my lesson that you know if I could potentially own something like that in the future, then I would actually do exactly what you're saying, separate them all out because the biggest learning lesson here is that as much as we have the right, um, I guess, intentions to sort of share and, and make it, I guess, cost effective and affordable for say students and you know potentially workers, sharing doesn't always work the best unless you know who they are. And um, it, it's all about picking the right people. So in this instance, if it can be actually segregated into separate rooms, just as we're talking about here, where they have their own kitchen, net, their own bathroom, I guess it would probably make a huge difference to minimize the amount of um, issues that would come up similar to what we both experienced. And this this was going 10 years ago as well for me too, <laughs> I remember. And, and luckily for me, I didn't have to sell anything. I just um, basically just cleaned up the property, moved the tenants all out and then I just returned back you know, as a rental back to the um, agent. And you know, they, they didn't say much more than that. They were just happy that you know, everything was returned back. But I just remember the headaches that I had to go through. And I said to myself, I'm not doing that again unless you know I buy the property. And this is where it, it kind of crossed paths with both you and me. We're having this discussion, saying, why don't we, you know, share this on the podcast and talk about the experiences? Because this could potentially be a real life case study of what we're actually implementing for us. So it, it's fascinating. Obviously, I didn't know that about you because obviously we're still getting to know each other and our property experiences over time. That's excellent, mate. And um, yeah, look, a few, few of the things that we'll talk about over time with these mini boarding houses are the adjustments there. It's funny how you talk about one washing machine can cause you so much headache, you know. <laughs> and, and one simple solution could be buy an, a second washing machine for everybody else and one washing machine for him. But, you know, I completely get it. It's, it's all well in hindsight. Um, but And I know that's not the real issue. And what, what you say, I'm just having a bit of a laugh. But to give you... <laughs> Uh, but to give you yeah, give you an idea of what I'm, I'm doing with my mini boarding houses to adjust for that is we're aiming to give everybody their own uh, front load washing machine. So it is a bit more capital. Like there's a few other things we are doing and I might as well mention them now while I remember them and I'll remind them, I'll bring them up later if I remember. One is where I can, I'll give everybody um, a courtyard, their own courtyard. Uh, one, secondly, is a front load washing machine so instead of let's say putting a dishwasher in the kitchenette we'll just put a front load washing machine in um, the uh, rental manager was very impressed with that and then uh, having because if people got their own courtyard and their own air conditioner then I'll give them their own uh, clothesline as well so I know yeah so I know clothesline isn't a big deal it might be a hundred bucks and got to install it but just thinking about little things like that another thing while I'm giving away my secrets is uh, <laughs> is a shed, is a small shed um, on, on the land there where we've allocated their courtyard uh, or on the side of the building. We, we'll give them a, a small shed, even if it's just you know, a metre wide by three metres deep to put in their bicycle or their surfboard. Um, yeah, there's just some, some things that if you are going to do this is find a way to add more value to the tenant without it costing you necessarily more money long term. It might be a capital investment, but with anything, because it's competitive, right? Uh, 
market like this is competitive, whether you're renting one bedrooms or a studio apartment or two bedrooms or three bedrooms in any um, scenario, you want to look at a competitive edge. And I've found that over years of accumulating property and tenants is if I give them more um, in terms of equipment and stuff that doesn't break down regularly and um, yeah, they can use it exclusively, it's more likely that they'll stay um, because yeah, yeah, stay long term exactly. And that's what I want is I want tenants who rent for me forever. I've got a guy named Warren who, uh, it's funny, he used to work as a, I think a sound engineer for neighbors back in the 90s. Um, you know, he'll never buy. Like he's in a position where he's happy to rent and he'll be, he's been renting for me for um, 300 bucks odd a week um, for four years now since I, I built one of my one bedroom townhouses as an experiment single story. And he's been there the whole time, and yeah, I think I don't think I'll be doing much rent rises because if he stays there, there's no turnover, no rental management fees. Um, he's mowing the lawns as well. I've given a lawnmower to mow. You've made it so easy for him. Like you literally feed him all the right things that he needs, all the essentials, and he'll just basically use them at his uh, discretion to make sure that he looks after property. And that's that's just an amazing concept. I was actually just thinking in terms of these properties, how do we actually fit that much on? Because we, I'm just trying to think about it. You know, if you're saying you're giving them a courtyard and you're giving them a clothesline, you need space. You know, at the end of the day. And <laughs> that's what I'm wondering, how do we fit that much on in a property with say five individual sort of almost mini units in there? Like how big are we actually allocating in terms of size wise? Because I know even units in Sydney when people were purchasing for you know less than 50 square meters, they were tiny. I mean, how big are we looking at in terms of size here? I think a lot of people's designs and we'll go into this a little bit later. I know I'm dropping a few lines here and... Um, about the future topics we're covering and not actually covering it yet, but th this is such a huge topic, right? And, and I'm glad that we're covering it. Um, but I think a lot of designs that people use are quite inefficient. They are very inefficient. Like for example, two stories versus single story. My buildings are single story. And I'm experimenting with that simply because with, for example, single stories, you don't have uh, staircases. So. You know, my father-in-law uh, is a retired developer slash builder and he, you know, I learned a lot from him over time and one of the things he used to do and complain about is how developers wasted a lot of walkways and hallways. So just a quick example is with my building that I've got is I've got a side entry front door, right? A side entry front door versus a front entry front door. Um, a couple of tenants have access via the front but the some of the rear tenants don't walk through the walkways uh, through the front. They have a side access door and then we reduce the amount of walkways. So my point is, is that a lot of the apartment builders and just when you're going two-story and above, it's very inefficient. Um, you got to do you know, uh, patios that are in the sky or balconies that are in the sky versus if you've got it on the ground. Um, you can allocate everybody a courtyard on the ground. There's a lot of wasted just space when you think about those units of those balconies. And I used to live in a unit apartment as well. And to be honest, I probably even went out there maybe twice out of the whole year just to even utilize it. I mean, I might go out there just hang some laundry and stuff like that, but that was about it. And, and even we, when we did, there was also strata rules that you're not allowed to hand laundry out there too. So that made it even <laughs> less use you know of those so i can understand from your point of view and from i guess developers is that it is kind of a bit of a waste of space and if you have that utilized to to be put on the ground instead as a courtyard it, it's actually probably a lot 
better use of space and also maybe even extending more of the insight, internal usage of the spaces. I started building houses when I was 25, 26, 27. So I've built a lot of houses in my time and gone through designs and fi- figured out what designs work and what designs don't work, what dimensions work. Um, and, and it is a lot of it is uh, science in terms of how big the rooms need to be, how wide they need to be, how long they need to be, uh, open plan. So my, my point is that because I've done a lot of deals in that way, that my designs, this is one that I'm building at the moment, I've spent 40, at least 40 hours on it uh, to, to come up with you know arrangements that work so you can fit TVs here. In some ways, call it you know, a, a studio apartment. You know, 30, 30, 40, 50 square meters. If you multiply that by five, roughly, that's uh, 30 square meters or 40 square meters by five. That's roughly a 200 square meter footprint. Coming up after a break, we'll learn about some amazing design tips. If I can you know, suggest anything, open plan just makes up for a lot of um, cramped issues. Why you need to always be on the lookout for things that can improve your property. Everybody knows about Meriton. I'll go into there and I'll take photos. Um, not not because I'm sticky beaking around. I might stay there for the night at Mascot before I go to a, a workshop or something and take photos and go, yep, they've designed that and that works. How through experience, you learn what you like and don't like. I have a principle where I like to build um, rectangular bathrooms, en suites, which is three meters wide by one meter long. So one meter wide by three meters long. So. Um, so my point is I come in based on my design principles that I've used many times in the past. So that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Nyang and I are continue on the discussion about how he can decide what size to design the internal spaces based on past experience comes down to a few things like I mentioned that one bedroom townhouse that I did in my townhouse complex as an experiment that was roughly 40 square meters so that was a good experiment to see one would people pay the rent and two uh, what the sizings would be so that's one example uh, another one is actually in our house that we live in when we extended the house a few years back we um, I was able to negotiate with my wife it was a negotiation, I reckon it took one to two years to get it across the line, but it was worth it, um, it is to install a granny flat underneath uh, the extension. So downstairs was a granny flat uh, with a laundry, washing machine, uh, full kitchen uh, for a tenant and that was roughly 40 square metres and above that was a, a, our own um, kitchen balcony. So we lived essentially on top of a tenant and he's moved out now. His name is Arthur. He moved out and now my wife's reclaimed the area. So she won in the end. I won in the short term. She won in the long term. Now she's got two kitchens as well as two front load washing machines. She She must be happy. She must be really happy. It's like, you know, when you guys need a bit of time apart, especially during COVID, (laughs) (laughs) you got your space. (laughs) Here's something that's funny that happened during COVID is uh, we were able to work out that she moved. We we used to share an office and now she's basically taken the uh, the bedroom in the granny flat as the office. So, no, really happy. It's worked out really well. But my point coming back to everything we've talked about, uh, with how do you know space works is through experiments and at the end of the day it comes actually down to numbers once you go once you've designed a few things you go okay uh, a 3.6 meter wide um, room feels like this a 2.8 meter wide room feels like this if you put this wall here and that sliding door there um, 
in, in short terms, uh, so simple terms is open plan is usually the most efficient, usually the most efficient. And, and usually these builders, if you're looking at choosing a builder, which we'll talk about at some stage too, is you, you'll get to see some of their designs and what they've built and they've experimented with a lot of things as well. So that's a good thing about seeing an example design. If you want, you can just copy and paste theirs. I've decided to come up with my own design using some of their principles, like let's say they've got five rooms, I've copied and pasted four of the rooms and just use them like Lego uh, into a design and then just massage that. But my point is it does take a, a bit of effort to research that, experiment with that, uh, walk through what um, the rooms feel like. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to <clears throat> excuse me, mathematics of how wide a room needs to be, how long a room needs to be. Um, and open plan, if, if I can you know, suggest anything, open plan just makes up for a lot of um, cramped issues. But we, we've got a skylight in one of our rooms um, simply because it's an open plan. At one end, you've got a double sliding door, which gives in a lot of light. But towards the other end, where there's no light coming in and there's no windows on that particular side, um, for whatever reason, yeah, we put in a skylight. So, um, yeah, th there's a lot of design factors in there. I'm not talking about, you know... Um, the block in terms of those design issues, their interior design issues. We're talking about space that's going to be efficient and we're going to be able to utilize every single little nook and cranny. Almost like when you think about it in Japan, Japan is so, so efficient in the way that they've actually developed their spaces. Like when I visit Japan and stayed in one of our friend's apartments because she stayed there for 12 months from originally from Australia. I was pleasantly surprised how small she could live in that because I know she's lived in a quite a big space at, at home, you know, in a two-bedroom story house with mum and dad. And then when we went and visited her in a little small apartment, she was very content and happy. But the beautiful thing I noticed is that and I even noticed in our own hotel that we're staying in was everything was really, really well positioned but it also fit just nicely. Like you, you, wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't expect to fit a shower and a toilet in maybe a meter wide you know uh, area like literally the toilet was somehow tucked away behind next to the shower in a, in a normal bathroom i wouldn't have expected that to fit <laughs> in australia in japan they've just managed to do that even you know to their bedding they've managed to somehow lift up the bed and, and fit up on the wall and that way opened up the lounge room to do whatever you want so if if those kind of factors have been taken into play and added here, I can imagine how many more, I guess, units and uh, space you'd actually achieve by applying some of the really interesting Japanese type of, um, I guess, architecture and uh, designs. And I think it's just the fact that being in Australia, we have so much more space and we've expanded into it. If you use a couple of examples, whether you go to Hong Kong, pick an Asian country, or you go to Europe, let's say you go to Italy, is that they're high-rise bound. So a lot of them... Uh, they live in, in apartments and they make it more efficient. Whereas us, we're used to living in houses. We're used to living on 400 square meters, 600 square meters. We're used to driving on roads that are quite wide. Like you said, going to Japan, like the biggest cars, there are actually quite small compared to the biggest cars we've got on the road. Um, so, so my point in the design is that my design is quite different. My angle, like oftentimes what people do is they, they see houses and they try to compact that house into a studio, whereas my experience has been in townhouses, multi-unit, um, and using those principles to design into a house. So kind of going in reverse, looking at studios and, 
and, and hotel rooms, for example. I often go into a hotel room. If you're in Sydney, everybody knows about Meriton. I'll go into there and I'll take photos. Um, not not just because I'm sticky beaking around. I might stay there for the night at Mascot before I go to a, a workshop or something and take photos and go, yep, they've designed that and that works, that doesn't work. I like this, I don't like that. Um, so a, a lot of the apartment yeah, designers have looked at ways to make it more efficient. And here, it's just yeah, having um, all, also it's having one person. You got to remember, it's having one person for the place. It's not like having um, four kids, uh, your know, husband, wife, four kids, or three kids, or two kids in, in a space. It's for an individual, so they don't need um, you know don't need a lot of space. They don't need a big ensuite. Um, and the tenant that you're attracting, you don't want them to be at home a lot either. So. You, yeah, you don't want them sitting at home, you know, smoking cigarettes and putting the smell into the walls or, or just even having parties outside, you know. So it's um, it's giving them enough but not too much to uh, attract uh, the wrong crowds. We're looking at sort of busy professionals, people who have a full-time job. They're either, you know, in a, in a very in a corporate environment where they're pretty much working and they're socializing out and about. They're coming home really just to have a sleep, you know, have a shower, sleep. Uh, relax and and then you know back off to the day and then the weekend they're probably out and about with their friends and family and so forth so it's just sort of almost a base for them just to be able to get in and out these kind of I guess attracting that type of people is that what we're sort of looking at the professionals there's a lot of factors that make some things some of these things work this and later on we'll talk about the minuses but um, from a tenant point of view a couple of pluses about this is the, the, the target market I'm looking at is around about you know the 280 per week to 320 per week. That, that's the niche that they're in. Any any more than that, they can get a, probably a one-bedroom apartment. Any less than that, they're going to have to go into a shared, excuse me, accommodation, play with a, a boarding house, right? So uh, at you know 150, 200 bucks a week. So my point is, it's a it's a sweet spot of affordability. So generally with rental tenancies, you look at a three-to-one ratio of affordability. So what does that mean? So let's say if they're paying 300 bucks a week, uh, they got to be earning roughly $900 a week. So you're talking at about a tenant who's earning 45 to 50 grand a year. That's very and, average, and that's affordable, yeah. Very affordable, very affordable, right? And the good thing about that is it's affordable, but also you're qualifying out the mishmash or the riffraff with, with Centrelink tenants, which was my main issue that I had. Um, and yeah, you're qualifying people that can afford stuff. They want nice stuff. They want new stuff as well. So when you're building these, you do provide a niche there. I make sure I give them big TVs. You know, you can go to Aldi, get a 65-inch TV for less than 800 bucks. Everything now is so cheap, you know, when they get them in there. It's it's really fascinating. And I, I guess I wanted to also ask you, are you working closely with an architect to actually design these up or are you actually, um, based on your experience, are you doing it yourself? I'm not getting an architect to work on them. Architects are very, very smart and very, very clever. However, in, in what I'm doing, like I said, is I'll go to the uh, builders and see what they've done. And uh, what I've done is essentially I've copied and pasted part of their rooms and then I've done a um, Lego trick or a Tetris trick where I've just cut cut out let's say five of the rooms and I've put them into order and I might have kept four out of the five rooms in, in certain layouts so that's one part and then the rest um, I'll go through my own design principles and go through iterations. I have run them by a couple of, of building designers to be honest with you but that's right at the end to figure out okay I can't fit this fridge into this room 
should I put it in this spot or should I put it in this spot? So, um, yeah, I think, don't get me wrong, architects are absolutely brilliant. But for something like this, it's more about um, practicality and efficiency. And like I said, that the numbers, are the how wide the rooms are, um, to, to give you some good ideas, like 3.6 is a really good width of a room, 3.6 meters. Uh, the benches um, are roughly 600 mil. So that's an allowance there. The, the bathrooms, I have a principle where I like to build um, rectangular bathrooms en suites which three meters wide by one meter long so one meter wide by three meters long so um so my point is i come in based on my design principles that i've used many times in the past i don't really like square bathrooms from my point of view uh, as a one bedroom tenant um, it's very inefficient so uh, it's a waste of space like yeah i'd rather a three bedroom sorry a three meter three square meter three meter wide by one meter long um bathroom ensuite yeah then a two pop two meter by two meter uh, ensuite it makes sense because the thing is i guess the the stock standard showers and the toilets and stuff like that have to fit in there in some way and you can't really quite fit it in a square block because the reason why i also resonate with this is because i've been just doing a renovation as well inside our um, I've got the commercial property down in Portland that I've actually just done the renovations for the bathroom and one of the issues we faced was we had a square bathroom <laughs> and I'm trying to fit in the toilet and the shower in there just couldn't fit in and the stock standard I'm talking about so we had to actually get a specific size for the shower basin um, which was about 600 mil I think difference compared to the other one I just can't remember the exact measurements but he had to especially order from Reese a specially small one which cost me a lot more it was like a couple hundred bucks extra I'm like oh my gosh it's only a few meal difference but he said because it just can't fit in the square they had to adjust it whereas it makes sense now if you go for a three by one um, you could easily fit in a standard shower and a standard toilet and that way it's a lot more efficient and furthermore, you know, it fits better too. If anyone looks at my design, some of them will pick up, pick it up, some people won't and some will like it and some people don't but that, that doesn't matter for in the big scheme of things for a lot of people, they won't be going and squeezing this design. Like I'll, I'll give an example, just a bit more background on my project to give people an idea of what um, why I pushed it so hard is it was a block that I didn't think I could subdivide. Uh, it was practically only 18 meters wide on a on a, a corner. So what I mean by that on is that it wasn't a rectangular block. Um, it did have single street frontage, not on a corner, but the uh, frontage was um, sloping. So essentially, marriage in a parallelogram where the corners are not um, 90 degrees. And um, it essentially, even though the block was 18 meters wide, if you measured it from one width, one side of the block to the other, it was actually only 16 uh, or 17 meters wide. So each block was only eight and a half meters wide each. So even though it was nine, uh, 18 meters wide, you'd think it was nine meter wide block. No, the blocks were only eight and a half meters wide. And, and so the buildings themselves, if you take away, let's say, a meter on each side, each building was, was only six and a half meter wide. And therefore, if you put a wall up the middle, roughly each of the rooms were three meters wide. So just to give you an idea, you know, when, when you haven't got much to work with, you have to be very, very uh, astute and, and figure things out. And, and so it's been a good challenge. There, lucky I do have a common wall to get an extra meter on the building. So the both basically in the middle between the two blocks the buildings will touch uh practically just on the boundary there and um yeah so my point was that yeah this block 
I didn't think that you could subdivide it, but the council as well as my town planner will come up with a solution that um, everybody was happy with, got it through, and hence we're building this. You sort of elaborate a little bit more to the audience. When you're saying talking about subdividing, I guess, what, what was the land size on this one again? So all up, it was 800 square meters, about 820, and I've just subdivided into two blocks of 400 square meters each. So 400 square meters each, and each block you can put on, say, a five-bedroom townhouse. Is that what what you're saying? A five-bedroom house. A five-bedroom house, sorry, not townhouse. A five-bedroom house, which basically then at, by the end of this, you'll have two five-bedroom houses on each block, which you could potentially sell off individually or keep for yourself as rental, which I assume you're doing it for rental purposes. One of the things that I think is a huge plus with this is normally to get, in this instance, let's call it five tenants per property or 10 tenants over two properties, is you need normally in the past to get a high or medium zoning. Right? This is a beautiful thing about what we're talking about here. In some states, we call it multi-occupancy. Uh, some terminology is rooming accommodation. Um, some people call it the affordable accommodation or student accommodation. Oh, affordable housing. Yep, that's it. So, but everyone's got a different terminology, I suppose. Yeah, each of the states and councils have different terminology. My point in a bigger picture is it's multiple sources of income: ten tenants on eight hundred square meters in two buildings that you can sell off individually. And why it's so powerful? There's a lot of reasons, and there's obviously minuses as well. You know, once you get to know me, you, you won't uh, just see that the pluses, but you see the minuses for a balanced view. But the the promise. The, the, so the beautiful plus on this is normally you would need a high density zoning to be able to get that amount of rental income. So you have to build, let's say, 10 apartments um, to do that. And here you can just do it on residential zoning, residential zoning. And obviously each council is different. Some councils will allow it. Some councils won't. Some councils will allow you to do four. Some councils allow you to do nine with the same zoning. My point is that whichever council it is, the ones that do approve it, allow it. You don't have to have a high density zoning, which which saves you a whole stack of cash. You know, if you were to do ten one bedroom apartments, as an example, in Brisbane or Gold Coast or Ipswich, just as an example, each dwelling you'd have to pay what's called a contribution or a tax to the council, um, roughly call it eighteen thousand dollars each, right? Eighteen thousand dollars per dwelling, um, call it one hundred eighty thousand dollars in that instance. Call it two hundred thousand dollars. Keep numbers simple. So. That's one huge positive. You don't have to pay that. The second thing is construction costs because essentially it is a house. Um, there's no fire rating in between the rooms and you can't sell the rooms off individually. But if you were to build, let's say, 10 one-bedroom apartments in a three-story building, that'd cost you every cent of, I'd reckon, 200 grand, if not more, per tenant or per building, right? So call it $2 million, $2.5 million plus that 200 grand, it's a $3 million build. So, and that's only the buildings, not even the land. Uh, um, yeah, in, in this instance, yeah, it's crazy. So in this instance, uh, with, with low sets and high sets, which we'll talk about at a later stage, you, you can get away with rather than 200, 250 a build, you can get away with sub, you know, sub 100 grand. So it might be 70 grand, 80 grand, 90 grand, depending on single story or two story per tenant just in the construction side of things, which is my point is that, like I said, I've been looking at this for a long time, over 10 years, and it ticks a lot of boxes. Um, there are yeah some challenges with it, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, but yeah, ticks a lot of boxes, which you'd normally have to build a block of apartments for.
Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into whether you should renovate or build a boarding house. My preference just from the outset is I prefer to build from scratch. We find out about what goes into being able to do renovations on your property. I think a big part of that is getting the right contacts and I suppose that's what we provide in our programs is having the right contacts and saving the time. We learn more about the financial side of things that many people might not know about renovating for a boarding house. From a finance point of view, you may be able to get into it as a residential but once you're done, once you either renovated it and extended it or you've um, built it, um, essentially it's probably going to be closer to a commercial player. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast.